This Rarecast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic disease. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Many people living with a rare and undiagnosed disease face a prolonged diagnostic odyssey that can be financially and emotionally taxing as they seek to put a name to what ails them. Co-founder and executive director of the Rare and Undiagnosed Network, Gina Zanuck, and co-founder and acting executive director of the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Foundation, Christina Might, both know what the search for a diagnosis is like and are working to help people find answers faster. Ahead of Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day, April 29th, we spoke to Zanuck and Might about their own diagnostic odysseys, efforts to speed the path to a diagnosis, and the upcoming Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day. Gina, Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having us, Danny. Absolutely. We're going to talk about living with an undiagnosed rare disease, our changing ability to diagnose patients with unrecognized rare conditions, and the upcoming undiagnosed disease day. Both of you, I suspect, will be familiar to our listeners, but I'd like to start by having each of you talk a little about your own stories and lives and and living with an undiagnosed rare disease Gina, you and your children have undiagnosed diseases. When did the diagnostic odyssey begin for you and your kids? Well, it really started when I had Ava, my oldest. So I have Ava is 14 now. Oscar is 12 and Lucy's 10. And I had a C-section with Ava and my body just came out on fire and everything just kind of changed after that. But I didn't really think about it. You know, you're a new mom. You just want to move on and and focus on your baby. And I ended up going through three more pregnancies, all C-sections, and just put my health on the back burner. And then we realized when Ava was about five, well, when she was three, she had diagnosed, um, was diagnosed with an arachnoid cyst, which is not, you know, a lot of people live their whole lives with an arachnoid cyst. But it also changed our thought process on raising her no soccer, no water skiing, no skiing. It's just never to hit her head. So that kind of changed, you know, being a mom and not everything's healthy, perfect is what you thought your journey was. But I say a lot of times, I wish I could go back to when Ava just had an arachnoid cyst. So she started having these very bizarre symptoms, redness in her hands and fatigue. And when she was five and that is kind of when the real diagnostic odyssey began. And at the time we were living in um, New Jersey and then we moved to Chicago and we were at all the hospitals in Chicago 
a little bit in, in Wisconsin and a neurologist. We went through every department with her. I think we started in dermatology to rheumatology and then every specialty, but kind of ended in neurology. And I will never forget when the neurologist kind of sat, you know, towards me or elbows on her knees and just took a big breath and just said, Gina, you will never have a diagnosis for Ava. She's undiagnosed and we will treat her symptoms. And that like put a spark in me to say, absolutely not. And that's truly when the official huge diagnostic odyssey began because I wasn't gonna accept that at the time. And we went on the journey to Mayo Clinic to about nine to 10 institutions. And just, it's been, she's 14 now. So it's been a long journey. And then you add in Oscar and Lucy, we realized quickly after that, that Oscar had it. Then we realized Lucy had it. And then we came back to visit my health at the same time. We were all getting work, worked up in about 2012, 2013. Is the assumption that all four of you share a condition? We like to say we have a constellation of symptoms. Um, we're not all the same exactly because Ava's had the four cranial surgeries from her subdural hygroma where none of us have had that, you know? So it's very interesting, but the general umbrella undiagnosed disease pattern, which we say is an undiagnosed autonomic neuropathy an undiagnosed genetic dysfunction is the same for all four of us. I think we, we start to get numb just hearing the statistics of undiagnosed rare disease and the, the average time it takes to get a diagnosis and how many doctors someone sees. But give us some sense of what it's been like to live through that. How difficult has it been to get doctors to take you seriously, get access to appropriate diagnostic tests and getting care when needed? For our family, we've been very blessed. I think in the beginning, it was hard to be taken serious. I remember even with her arachnoid cyst, the pediatrician just said, it's just the way her skull was formed. And I begged him to refer me to a neurologist neurosurgeon because she had this large you know, skull bump on the left side. And he finally said to me, I'm gonna humor myself and send you to the neurosurgeon. And I can't wait to see him say, it's, it's nothing, it's benign. Well, it wasn't. <laughs> It was a, you know, an arachnoid cyst, and that ended up having to have a fist, uh, cyst fenestration. She had two external drains. She had a cyst fenestration. She's now shunt dependent. And if you go back to that moment, it's, it's devastating to a mother when your gut tells you there's something wrong. And especially when after she did hit her head in May 2013, we couldn't get anybody to believe us or understand. And she would scream like a wild animal at night. And sure enough, it took her to start going blind with papilledema in the ER at Children's Hospital, Wisconsin, before they did listen. They were going to send us home on Thursday to come back the next Tuesday for a neuroconsult. In that time, she definitely would have been blind and most likely pass away. So I think that urgency in the mother is to listen to that, that gut feeling always. But I think since then, our journey's been wonderful, even at Children's Hospital Wisconsin. It, they, they had a whole team, which I think is really interesting, of kind of the secret medical team that's watching everything going on in the hospital. And they were assessing our, our situation. They were getting the medical records from Mayo Clinic. And we went on then after her 
shunt surgery. We went on the, that undiagnosed autonomic neuropathy path with them, with Mayo, with them. We moved to Utah and our team here at Utah was fantastic. So we've been blessed in that. I think because we we have the documentation from the trauma that helped us move our path forward. I also have very visual distal joints that show that there's something wrong with me, even though you can't tell from any of the four of us that, that we're ill because it's invisible. Um, but I think bringing into our conversation and why Christina might is, is part of our journey is that we also then applied to the Undiagnosed Disease Network, the UDN, and were accepted as the first family to be accepted back in 2015-16. And then that journey, you're in that world, and it's a wonderful world to be able to be accepted to. And that was the journey through the UDN that we went through. How does not having a diagnosis complicate getting insurers to pay for what you need? It definitely complicates it. It's a lot more peer-to-peer -peer calls for doctors. I think there's scans. I remember a, a really important scan that we never did get approved, and I think we fought for it for about two to three years, a PET scan. And um, I think it's hard because at the time, whole genome sequencing wasn't approved. And then that was luckily we were with the Utah Genome Project, so we went through the research side of things. So I think it is. It's really hard. It's it's very time consuming, exhausting. You'll get your hopes up to have an exam or a test ordered, all of a sudden to get the piece of paper in the mail saying it will not be approved. Christina, I, I think many people in the rare disease community felt a gut punch when they learned that your son Bertrand had died. He became the first person diagnosed with NGLY1 deficiency, a genetic neurodegenerative condition. What did it take to get that diagnosis for Bertrand? Oh my goodness, Danny. This really takes me back. And also listening to Gina, I think I have a little bit of PTSD when it comes to the diagnostic odyssey, um, especially when looking back on, on Buddy's journey. I'm really struck by how fortunate he actually was, um, how fortunate we all were, because his diagnostic odyssey only took four years. <laughs> Um, he was very, very fortunate to be one of the first patients in the world to have access to clinical exome sequencing and, you know, to have a mother who could take him to, you know, Cleveland Clinic, Johns Hopkins, NIH, Duke, and other places just like Gina. And I feel struck by the amount of privilege that, you know, we we're college educated and we had the resources to be able to travel the ability to be able to go without having to work and do all of these things. And, and the thing is undiagnosed diseases are not limited to people with means. They are also, you know, so many other patients and their families who don't have those things also <laughs> struggle, but you know, they, they, I, I would love to hear more from them and figure out what we could do for them. But Betty's journey was long. It was arduous. Like Gina, he died. He almost died multiple times. We spent, you know, as long as six weeks in the ICU at any given point. Um, you know, every kind of testing known to man was done on on that poor baby. And you know, I miss him every day. But I think that that just underscores why Gina and I and so many others within the UDN and the global undiagnosed disease community, like my colleague Helene. 
um, Sederoth from, from Sweden and, and many, many others are working together to try to come up with a better solution for the undiagnosed and for the newly diagnosed. <laughs> when you did get the diagnosis, even though this was a newly discovered disorder, how did having a name for it and knowing what it was change things for you? Well, it changed things a lot, and then it didn't change things at all, okay, if that makes any sense. Having a name to a disorder, and we actually got to name the disorder, uh, was very empowering. It made us feel like we were less crazy. It gave, felt made us feel validated with, you know, doctors, scientists, but also with family members and friends, uh, gave us the ability to pursue family planning options and have more children and gave us the ability to pursue therapeutics and other, you know, critically vital things. But by the same token, it just launched us on a totally new odyssey, which was that of therapeutic development when when no community exists, when no pre-existing science or, or therapies exist, you've just left one island and moved on to another so it was it was great but at the same time it, it kind of kind of left us still very much feeling adrift i think people who are caregivers can often neglect their own health needs you've had your own rare disease journey you were diagnosed with myasthenia gravis a rare autoimmune condition that is relatively well understood but how long did it take you to get diagnosed and how quick were you to pursue a diagnosis? Oh my goodness. This is so, it's almost embarrassing. Um, but yes, I've been diagnosed with generalized myasthenia gravis and it was in part because do as I say, not as I do, right? You, you're supposed to engage in self-care. Everybody tells the caregivers, yes, of course, sleep, eat, do do the things you need to. But when your child is is ill or your loved one is ill, you don't really take time to do those things. It took me, I want to say close to two years to get diagnosed for a very well-known um, rare disease, one that we have a great deal of support for, because even though I am a very strong advocate for my child, I am not necessarily the strongest advocate for myself. And those were two totally different, you know, challenges to, that I faced. And so I'm trying to get better at self-advocacy right now. So hats off to those who've been on this journey much longer than I have. <laughs> so it's interesting because we talk about the diagnostic odyssey all the time, but you've actually encountered what you've referred to as a therapeutic odyssey. I'm wondering if you can explain that. Yes, I think that a lot more people undertake a therapeutic odyssey and honestly, a diagnostic odyssey. When I look more broadly at conditions, once upon a time, things like autism or cerebral palsy or epilepsy, these common, quote unquote, common conditions that we've since found to be, you know, more rare conditions, just groupings based on phenotype. I see things like depression, anxiety, ADHD, and these other common conditions. And I feel like the future of medicine is in really trying to uh, phenotype those and understand those conditions so that they can be more quickly and accurately treated, same as rare disease. So hopefully we can we can do a better job of accurately diagnosing patients 
no matter what in order to accurately treat them. And this odyssey is, is it's just, it's crippling. Um, it's very time consuming, even in the cases where there is an existing treatment, like in, in myasthenia gravis. I've already gone through several treatments. Uh, it's very dependent on the individual. It's very personalized. And right now, science has, I think, outpaced medicine's administrative or bureaucratic or other um, capabilities. I think it's a, a time and a place of great opportunity for the rare disease community, but also for medicine more broadly, because we do have a lot of great understanding that exists almost in silos. And now there's an opportunity for the patient community to come together and encourage all stakeholders to play a role in this and to start bringing those pieces together to have communication, collaboration, and to, to share so that we can hopefully optimize and accelerate the rate at which you get diagnosed and treated. Because that odyssey is very isolating, no matter which leg of it you're on. <laughs> Both of you are involved in important work for people with undiagnosed rare diseases. You're co-founder of and acting director of the Undiagnosed Disease Network Foundation. What is the Undiagnosed Disease Network Foundation and what is it working to do? So the we call it the UDNF for short, but the Undiagnosed Diseases Network Foundation is a new global patient organization um, representing the interests of the undiagnosed, the misdiagnosed, and the newly diagnosed patients and their families who want to see clinical action for patients today, not, not waiting for some distant future. So really trying to serve as that bridge builder between academics, clinicians, researchers, industry, policymakers, and other, other patient groups and organizations to get everybody to work together. One of the vehicles that we're using is the Undiagnosed Diseases Network, which was a program of the U.S. government's NIH Common Fund, and that network was incredibly successful in discovering phenotyping and starting next steps for brand new rare diseases. Patients such as Gina were apart, but there's still many patients who remain undiagnosed. And then there's that issue of that next step. It's not particularly fair to expect patients and their families to drop everything, um, quit jobs, start foundations, and just become therapeutic development experts. So using that infrastructure that Uncle Sam paid for, that is the UDN, to hopefully build out a shared infrastructure for therapeutic development as well as di improving diagnosis more broadly and in more than just genetics. Because as Gina can tell you, you know, there's some epigenetic factors, possibly environmental exposures, other things come into play when it comes to rare undiagnosed diseases that you know, we, we need to start building those tools. Um, they can be diagnostic tools, clinical tools, but also informatic tools, um, artificial intelligence, machine learning, um, all of these natural language tools that are coming about and really trying to knit all those pieces together so they're not just existing in academic silos and hopefully start, start creating some real action because the, the terrifying part, and I'm sorry if I'm running on, is that in 10 years from my son's diagnosis, 
I would have thought that the state of affairs <laughs> would have been different for new people and new patients and families being diagnosed today. And tragically, it wasn't. They were still having to shoulder that burden almost single-handedly. There didn't exist and there doesn't exist that shared infrastructure yet. And so transforming the UDN into what patients and families want and need is really the goal of the UDNF. The UDNF is coming at a time when the UDN is uh, about to lose a significant portion of funding. Can you explain that? Yes. So the, the UDN was a program of the NIH Common Fund. By law, those fund programs can only go on for 10 years. And so this is the end of the 10th year is, is coming up. And it is known, widely touted to be the gem of the NIH Common Fund. It was the most successful program in NIH Common Fund history. Uh, it has done phenomenal things. But, you know, their, their hands are basically somewhat tied when it comes to what they can and can't fund. So we're trying to find new innovative ways to partner or to create new programs to extend the, the capabilities of the network, which is what patients and families want anyway. Um, and hopefully, you know, really evolve it and expand it to reach more patients within their communities to um, hopefully expand things globally. And we're trying to merge what's known as the Undiagnosed Diseases Network International as, and the UDN together, patients and families being that glue that binds them to really serve not just all the families here in the U.S., but really, you know, rare doesn't care about geography. There are patients in the third world or in developing countries that they deserve diagnosis and treatment just as much as, you know, my child did. So we can't turn a blind eye to them, especially when, you know, some of the conditions that they face are even more devastating. We've, Gina and I never were under the threat of being stoned to death for saying that our child had a rare disease or being cast out of our family, our community, because we were seen as having demonic possession or witchcraft for having an undiagnosed rare disease. Giving these patients a name, like you said, there doesn't just give them all the options and, and benefits that I mentioned. It also gives them their humanity back, which, you know, as a mom, as a rare disease patient, as a human being, I feel an ethical and moral obligation to try our best to make that possible. So you you say you were never stoned, but I, I was kind of astounded to learn of the online harassment you suffered in, in seeking to find answers for your son. Oh yes. That was early on before data sharing became commonplace and we had very limited options with how to find other patients or researchers or resources to help Bertrand. Um you know, this was in the dawn of the internet era. This is back in 2010, 2011, 2012. Our family's story went viral. This was back when viral had just kind of become a term. And internet trolls were alive and well, but even within our own community, even responding to newspaper stories, et cetera, people were 
incredibly cruel, um, you know, saying that, you know, we should be sterilized, that my son should be put down, that he should be suffocated, I should take a pillow and smother him, that we were irresponsible, that people like us shouldn't be allowed to breed. Um, you know, the vitriol was, was intense. And I don't think that on top of dealing with a sick child that any, any parent should have to deal with that or any patient themselves. It's just, but that's what you find out there. And that's the, the other side of being so open and advocating and sharing your story. And that's something that nobody warned us about because it was early days, but anybody who has shared their stories probably now maybe expects some of the internet trolls to come out of the woodwork. But back then I was totally unprepared for the hate. It was. Yeah. You mentioned uh, by law, the funding that UDN has received through the common fund is going to be going away. How much of a gap does that leave? Oh gosh. Well, thanks to patient advocacy and um, the patients and families of the UDN, as well as, you know, the great people who work at the NIH, they've chosen to expand uh, or create a program to help fund a coordinating center for the UDN at $5 million per year for five years. That leaves a funding gap of $15 million a year that unfortunately the brunt of that goes to the sites that are, you know, in the trenches that are covering some of the the costs for patients who don't have Medicaid or the patients who do have Medicaid but can't travel out of state. And so the UDN currently covers all of that. So the ones who are unfortunately bearing the cost of that are like the least of our community, like the 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 most underserved, which is absolutely tragic. And I don't think that's the intent, but they need to hear from us. They need to hear from patients and families. They need to hear from the broader, rare, and undiagnosed community. Anybody who's ever been undiagnosed probably should speak up and let Washington know, let others at the NIH and elsewhere know that this UDN program should be preserved in some way. It would be wasteful. It's been an incredible investment, one of the best investments that the U.S. government has put together. So I would, I would love to see it continue, but I'm very biased. <laughs> Gina, you're the co-founder and executive director of the Rare and Undiagnosed Network. What is RUN and what does it do? Well, RUN came out of, you know, our experience with Ava and our journey about, I, I felt alone at the time. So I created with um, uh, Dr. Reed Robinson back in 2014, the Rare and Undiagnosed Network, to just kind of get our story out there, but also to build a network of researchers, physicians, patients, advocacy groups, and just kind of bring everybody to one platform and to share not only our, our journey, but anybody's journey that's been on, on this diagnostic odyssey and just to make a community for not only the mothers, but also the children. And I felt I was worried about my children going through school, high school, college life, thinking they were alone. And I think this through run, it kind of took its its own, oh, this, its own life and became something bigger than our family. And now my children do have a community. I have a community um, and it brought a lot of 
opportunities. But I think runs, you know, Christina, I've talked about this because I'm also, you know, helping with beauty and F in any way that I can. But I think runs really focused on education and advocacy. But in the next few years, I really want run to focus on action. And so what Christina is doing with the UDNF and through the UDN and the UDNI, that's helping to also bring actionable um, causes our way to also support them and every um, way that we can support the indigenous community. So I feel like runs evolved from advocacy and educational you know, experiences to how can we be actionable for the community. As the two of you think about people who are suspected of having a rare genetic disease that's undiagnosed, do you think we're better at finding answers today? Is, is there something that gives you hope that we're going to be able to find answers faster for more people? Go, go ahead, Christina. <laughs> She's throwing me under the bus. I actually feel like we are finding answers. I know. We are finding answers faster for a lot of conditions now. Um, but it's leaving behind a lot of the ones that are the hard cases, I think. You know, especially at academic medical centers, those that are undiagnosed there. Uh, tend to be really, really difficult cases to diagnose. And I think there's going to be multi-genomic or multifactorial conditions, you know, like we said, epigenetic conditions or maybe environmental factors, others that are that are complicating a diagnosis that we're now going to have to start expanding the field of genomics and, and of diagnosis to be able to find answers for these patients. But I think in other communities and in other places, Sadly, you know, it would all it would take would be running the right test or getting that covered. So we really do need not just the science to be there, but we also need the advocacy. We need the policy. We need the education, the awareness. All of those community and other factors need to be there too. We can't just do science, although the science is critically important. We need all those other pieces to be aligned. What do you think, Gina? I, I agree with that. I was, you know, back in the day when Ava was five, six, seven, they said it'll be 20 to 25 years before science catches up to be able to help us. You know, we're getting, she's, like I said, she's 14. We're getting, it just feels still far away for the complicated um, disease processes that, you know, unfortunately our family falls into. But I, I have hope with a lot of things you know, like Christina's talking about, we just have, it's not just the science, it is everything. And that's why this sharing our story still now and continuing on this diagnostic odyssey to just to keep push, pushing forward in everything that Christina mentioned, science, policy, everything. Both of you are going to be working with the data sharing platform RareX to encourage people who are undiagnosed to share their health data. Why does this matter? Well, I think community is so much more when it comes to undiagnosed than it is for, than people give it credit for. I think there's power in numbers. Having a better idea of, you know, the scope of the undiagnosed problem, being able to use that kind of data to maybe facilitate matching across not just states, but geography across the world to be able to identify more patients like you 
even if they haven't been able to identify anything within your genetic testing. Maybe it's through matching with different phenotypes and then they can look um, and find matching there for community. But also it's, I think that this, the issue of the undiagnosed has not fully been understood. I think there's so many other people who probably feel misdiagnosed as well. So being able to really capture that and, you know, present it and share it in such a way that it is collaborative and that it can um, just interface well with industry. So when, you know, patients want to go or FDA, so when patients want to develop therapeutics, when they want to pursue, um, you know, getting treatments approved, the data is already there. They're not having to go back through and, and recreate the wheel. They're not having to, oh, I filled out this patient registry. Well, now I have to create another patient registry for therapeutics. No, this way you're only doing everything once instead of having to fill out form after form after form, time after time after time. So hopefully this will be a, a big time saver for patients and families, but also for, for clinicians, researchers, and, and companies who are interested in hopefully solving problems for these patients and families. For me, what it gives me and our family and all the families that are undiagnosed or even and rare is just to have that collaboration and not feel like you're at a dead end and not to be that word we use over and over again, siloed. I feel like it's opening up this whole new world to these patients and people and families that there's gonna be this world of collaboration and it gives me hope, a lot of hope. Most of our listeners will be familiar with Rare Disease Day, which takes place at the end of February. The end of April marks Rare Undiagnosed Disease Day. Gina, how will you be celebrating this and what is the goal of Rare Undiagnosed Disease Day? I think the goal of Undiagnosed Rare Disease Day or short Undiagnosed Day is just to raise awareness, you know, obviously within our community, but with the general public and to really shine a light on the severity of the international problem with the undiagnosed rare disease community and to also celebrate everyone that's involved in the undiagnosed rare disease community as you know the physicians the everyone that's working in this in this space researchers and industry and policymakers to just say celebration but also to keep pushing forward and to have our voices heard and to just be as loud as we can and just to get the attention of the general public and to celebrate and raise awareness for undiagnosed rare disease families. For people who would like to participate in Rare Undiagnosed Disease Day, what can they do and, and where can they go to find out more? I think we're going to have a lot of um, you know, obviously on social media, there will be a lot of things that will be putting out there for undiagnosed rare disease day. And, you know, I still with COVID still, um, we haven't really done any live events or locally or nationally um, this year, but hopefully next year we'll be able to get back in person events. Uh, is there more information that they can find on the run website or? Correct. Yes, I have. A, um, I will be putting out more information on the day and leading up to the day. But yes, at rare undiagnosed org, there will be a lot of information of how to share the information that we have on our site. Um, we also have Ava's ribbon that she designed way back in 2016 that I've offered to the world to share to, to kind of have a symbol for an awareness 
ribbon for the community that I think we'll have also some more um, articles coming out and podcasts coming out and we'll just try to get our voices heard as much as we can. Um, our partners at, um, like I mentioned, UDNI, the Undiagnosed Diseases Network International and the Wilhelm Foundation are actually putting on undiagnosed day events. And I was trying to find the website because Gina, I don't remember it. I think it's something like undiagnosed day or undiagnosed something. No, but there, there's, there's a symposium, there's different speakers, um, and hopefully this will continue to gain momentum because, you know, this undiagnosed disease day, I think I'm, I'm commemorating my son and others like him who have passed away on, on the Odyssey and hopefully remembering that there's still so many here that are worth fighting for. And hopefully, you know, while Gina is, is the sweet, I'm the sour, I'm going to kick a few hornets nests and hopefully get other people just as motivated to, like we've said, create some action because everything, all the pieces are there. We just need people to work together. So hopefully this is the year that we don't take any more excuses as answers within the undiagnosed community and we make some change. What advice would each of you offer for people who are undiagnosed? Uh, I'll start with Gina. My advice is just to listen to your gut. And if something feels wrong, I think you have to find and continue to find a good medical team that will listen to you, that will be your partner on this journey. I think many times, and when I talk to many, many patients, it's they're, they're feel like they're not heard. And I feel like you just have to keep going, keep fighting. As I've said before, you only have one body and one life. You're worth fighting for and your children are worth fighting for, your parents are worth fighting for, you're, you're, it's, you just, my advice is just to keep going and not give up and every day wake up and, and fight and try to work that diagnostic odyssey to your advantage until you can get to the person that will listen to you and help you on your path. Christina? Hmm. I feel like I'm talking out of two sides of my mouth. On one one side, <laughs> part, part of me wants to say it's it's a marathon, not a sprint when it comes to your odyssey. Like, I feel like so many families burn themselves out and get discouraged when they don't see results right away. And you have to basically document, document, document. And like Gina said, you know, you have to stay on top of people. You need to keep finding resources, but it's, it's step by step, you know, how you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? It's the same thing with undiagnosed. When I look back and look at everything we managed to accomplish and do with Buddy, it, it, it that did not happen overnight. That was the culmination of almost 13 years of effort. So each, each day is, is celebrate those small victories. Remember to sleep, eat, take time for yourself and for your families. Love and hug on your, on your little ones, your loved ones, because time is that most precious of all resources and we never have enough of it. Um, so I don't know, just don't give up hope. Don't be afraid to ask for help because there are amazing resources like Run, uh, Gina, uh, Amy, Clugston, and so many, uh, Aline, so many others within the undiagnosed community that are there. Of course, the UDN as well, um, that are there to help undiagnosed patients and their families. But, you know, give yourself some grace 
and uh, hopefully if it, today is a hard day, you know, wake up tomorrow and, and keep fighting. Gina Zanuck, co-founder and executive director of the Rare and Undiagnosed Network, and Christina Mike, co-founder and acting executive director of the Undiagnosed Disease Network Foundation. Gina, Christina, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you, Danny. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.